welcome to the DDP podcast channel. We sincerely hope you will enjoy this episode. Don't forget to turn on your notification bell and to follow us right here on Spotify for more podcast episodes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be joining us today. Thank you for listening into DDP Podcast once again. It's very happy to have you back. Um, whether you're joining us on YouTube or on Spotify, um, we've got a very fun episode for you today. Joining me today is Cynthia Chinguenya, uh, who is the CAS Program Coordinator and uh, African Union Youth Ambassador. And we are speaking about the culture of democracy, um, not just necessarily in South Africa, but in Africa as a whole. And I think um, her views are going to be amazing um, in our conversation. But before we get into that, Cynthia, how are you? And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Anya, for having me. Such a pleasure to finally get to engage with you, I think, after months of Awesome, thank you. So let's just um, get right into it. Uh, what does democracy mean to you? That's, that's, that's a tough one to start with. Um, democracy, I think that the, uh, with, obviously from, from where the name comes from, which is um, and Kratos Demis meaning uh, people and Kratos meaning power. So democracy would be then uh, power by the people. But does that always translate to your everyday realities? Um, uh, not necessarily. So I think for me, what would be at the center of democracy is defining that to to the layman or what is relatable is actually a people-centered approach to development. That's what democracy is, that's what politics should be about, that's what elections should be centered on, but it's the positions of power people that really have, you know, representatives that have interests for people at heart. So that's, that's what democracy is, and I am very fortunate because um, quite often on platform you hear people saying, oh, you know, it's an important concept, it's a European concept, but really if you look at African values such as Ubuntu, such as um, you know, even in, in, in my culture, which is the Shona culture, when people greet each other, for instance, they say, um, which means I am well if you're okay. And, and that goes back again to, to what I was saying, that African culture and its own is actually very people-centered. It's centered around, you know, how one is being, being connected. And that's what, I think, in terms of values, that what, that's what democracy stands for and that's what it should be about. Um, I think once we take that approach, we can't even discuss issues about accountability because already we imbibe these values where we prioritize others so much so that we don't put personal gain or corruption and we prioritize the, the common good of other people in our society. So that's, that's what my interpretation of democracy. Well, I think it's a spot-on interpretation because I think you've touched on the fact that it goes beyond elections. It's a lived experience. Um, and I think you're also touching a little bit on the growing conversations right now around democracy and reimagining them within the African context. Um, and for some reason, African leaders have 
gone so far out with it, imagining, oh, yeah, if it's in the African context, it means there needs to be some authoritarianism attached to it, when uh, what you just said now, exactly about how African culture values people-centered, um, you know, culture and just uh, the fact that I don't exist if you're not existing, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. Um, and when you think about like the values of democracy, um, particularly the ones that talk about the importance of having transparency, right? Um, and values that are speaking about the protection of human rights. Um, those things have to be people-centered, whether we like it or not. Um, and so then I just want to get then into this growing conversation right now that democracy is failing. Um, I'm of the belief that it's, it's not. I just think that there's been a warped understanding of what democratic values are and they fall short in terms of democratic processes, right? And that's where the dissatisfaction actually is. Um, but there's this growing distrust in government and the system in general is at an all-time high, like just people not trusting the government. And politics seemingly is moving towards more polarization instead of unity. And complex problems are being treated with the most simple solutions, giving rise to issues of populism, right? Um, do you believe that democracy is failing? Um, yes or no? And perhaps what do you think your solutions to it could be? Okay, um, I, I like the last part which is about solutions. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and figure that out in what I'm going to so you know, what do you what do you touch on with all the overall context, which is uh, polarization is interesting, especially in the context of, um, I think there was a, a launch by the International Institute uh, last year, the Global Peace Index last Friday. What they actually noted was that there's an internationalization of conflict, which means we're even becoming further polarized. And, and that's a concern for not just um, democracy, but development and also just, you know, um, the well-being or security of citizens within our various countries, and mostly because of political alignment or political reasons. So, so that's, that's concerning. Um, do I think that um, there is a democratic recession or democracy I think um, I think it's fair to be express acknowledgement that that we see the trend. Uh, we talk about the unconstitutional changes of government in several West African countries. We see theoretical African context the protests that people have engaged in for for decades and end. Um, I think there's an article by uh, one of the professors at the University of Johannesburg that actually Africa as a protest nation, and in as much as those are of expression, they actually reflect to us that people are increasingly preferring to participate in, in informal spaces rather than going to the ballot, so they actually go to the streets and, and protest. And it's not just as an African phenomenon, we speak in Algeria, um, you know, the protest against uh, President Bouteflika, in uh, Tunisia, we speak about the Yasmin Revolution, Nigeria, and uh, um, in the European context, fighting so really, um, I think you see the shift from, from the formal spaces where we traditionally support versus where democracy is exercised, such as going to parliament, such as, you know, directly voting elections and, and, and um, shifting to the alternatives. But also, even on the global context, in terms of international um, 
development or international politics, we also see, I think, more and more calls for um, our institutions, such as the United Nations, to be more representative, even to extent where, you know, um, several African leaders and heads of state have spoken against our institutions, IMF, United Nations. And again, these are institutions we traditionally have to guide or more what international politics or international development is. So, so I think there is that concerning trend, but I share similar sentiments with you when you say, um, you know, you you still believe in democracy, you think it's something that could work. Um, I share similar sentiments. I don't think um, autocracy is, a, is, is an answer either. And up until we have an alternative to, to international development, to these international structures, we actually have to work democracy because we, we don't have a sort of a, an alternative for now. And I don't think other forms of, of regime are more results or better results than a democratic institution does. And um, I recently completed a training with the with African Center for um, Strategic Studies. And, and one of the professors there said something that said, um, in light of the unconstitutional changes of government, military regimes do not serve the best interests of the people, even those in the military. And I found that very profound because sometimes we think of them as, as a response, but we then see cases such as Sudan, where the military then comes into power and then they take over power and then within um, you know, years after Omar Abashir sits down, we have a civil war. And again, people are at their lives at risk. So I don't think military regimes serve not even those that are in the military themselves. I think so, um, yes. Um, <laughs> I think I think we've really got that in this day, but I'll let you respond and then I'll I'll move to uh, I'll move to the solution. Yeah, I just wanted to to uh speak about like the military uh solution, right? Um oftentimes the military solution usually comes out of um a need for some revolution to happen against a particular dictatorship. And so people attempt to use the military to mobilize because it has the weapons, it has the artillery, it has the power to make it happen. And I'm just thinking now, it's such a random example, not necessarily with like politics here in Africa and the world as a whole with military stuff, but the principle I think remains the same. In the anime uh, Attack on Titan, there's a little bit of a betrayal that happens where the people entrust the military core to protect them. And things come up that, listen, these people actually don't have your mind and interest, right? And it brings out like conversations of, well, then should we be letting those who quote unquote liberate us um, end up ruling us? Which has been the effect of uh, a lot of the, the leadership in African countries where you have these prominent leaders who were revolutionaries during the time that uh, the countries were colonized. And yet when they got into power, it's almost as if the people-centered mindset completely left their minds, right? Um, and it's a scary, you know, situation because it's like, well, but now you led us into this moment and it's exactly what uh, Sudan is going through. You led us to this moment and now all of a sudden you're saying we can't get that democracy side of things. We can't be recognized as people. Um, as, that's just the one thing I wanted to, to add to the conversation, but I think you were heading towards the solution side of things. 
thank you so much for that for that input. And I, I think coming from, I, I was just a little bit of my background on racism mobile, which is uh, you know an, an interesting thing in, in terms of its politics. And um, the campus politics is really centered around you know um, independence and liberation ideologies, almost to such an extent that you do not fight in the liberation war. It's difficult to make a case to have a, a significant position within the government. And yet it's nearly 40 years since that, that war was fought. So if I want to run for politics and I just fight for war, well, I wasn't born then. And so, um, so it's just interesting that you say that. In different cases, we see the cases of Ghana, where Commissary Madan goes and has a one-party state. So it's an interesting question around um, liberators and their government. Is their role just to liberate and then hand the basin to, to other people that will ensure a, a country's economic development? Um, and so one uh, very famous uh, professor, Lipa, um, he's pan Africanism and speaks so much, and he's got one of his favorite things that he says, no matter how good a doctor you are, you should know when to use a stage. And um, and I think that's that's one of the challenges that we have when when people get into positions of power, then they do not want to let go. That becomes their their um like president for life, or you know, inside people leading organizations for thirty plus years, and that limits the institutional capacity to reinvent itself and become fit for purpose because leadership hasn't hasn't changed much. So um, I think three responses to how to enhance democracy and participation some of the challenges we're having. And at the center of it is a citizens are critical. And I, I say this because I'm feeling the communion and every time when I get into the country or I get into the conversation, people are quick to say, Okay, the AU doesn't appear here or they didn't um, come to our country when they were in human rights violations. Actually, that is not the role of the African Union as an institution because it's an institution that is president or head of state or country. So the leadership that is at the country level is very much reflected at the regional level. So if you as an electorate or citizens are not playing your part in electing members that are that are competent, that represent you, that have your interests at heart, then that's what you have been at the Level, you have very same people. So it's almost as though asking an institution represented by the very people you complain about to come and interfere. So I think having an informed electorate is critical, even more critical than, than most of the institutions can interfere in, in national politics. So citizens must, must participate in elections, citizens must um, elect people who are competent, citizens must be informed in a total list account. That is critical in, uh, in, in in order to make democracy. Uh, apart from citizens, I also believe that um, we need to have institutions. We need to have institutions that are inclusive. We need to have institutions that are fit for purpose. We need to have institutions that are that are relevant. Um, and a part of doing that or achieving that is actually reevaluating and reassessing. Saying, okay, when we formed this political party, for instance, that was based on democracy for South Africans in 1994, but years later, this is 2023, are we still speaking to the needs of the people? So that continues to reflect and the reflection rather and introspection of the institutions, what their purposes are, and do they continue to still serve the people? I think that is critical. So in addition,
addition to an effective approach, I think um, special purpose institutions are necessary, and your Chapter 9 institutions come in here to ensure accountability, and that these are part of the institutions that we speak of. And then um, finally, coordination and coherence. Because as much as we say, okay, the responsibility of the citizens, the responsibility of, of the institutions, um, I wish to think that it's the international sphere has got a role to play in influencing and promoting good practices. So that coherence uh, within your um, African Union as an institution, the United Nations, um, international organizations, the regional organizations that is static is, is really that these human rights violations in Eswatini, um, those institutions must speak up and don't take evidence. So that when it happens in Mr. Tewes and Bobo and Zambia, you know, um, you know, it doesn't then just become the norm. So I think those those three those three um components are really critical in, in terms of enhancing democracy. The citizens first, they have the sole responsibility, the institutions to protect and promote the progress that has been made. Regional organizations to to support the changes that have been made at the national level. Um, um, yeah, I think you have okay. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> um, just to go back to the citizen responsibility and the informed electorate and the importance of it. Um, I think it's common knowledge at this point that, you know, when we think about um, Africans' electorate, um, it's growing more and more every single day to becoming a youth electorate. And the opportunity to be informed and to have those opportunities to be in the formal spaces as youth to be able to have your voice heard, it seems to be shrinking. And um, on top of that, there's almost also this roadblock that young people have come to of believing that, fine, okay, my responsibility as an African citizen is to hold these leaders accountable. Um, but my informal means of holding them accountable when we think about protests and mobilization on the ground is often pushed forward by young people. That's not being recognized. Secondly, the people that I see on the ballot don't reflect me. So why would I go ahead and vote for those people who ultimately would be, you know, on the national level to the regional to um, an African union level? There's, there's that conundrum and frustration that a lot of young people are currently uh, facing. And I was at an event last week uh, with Youth Lab and we all kind of were just like stuck in the room and we were like, we know the frustrations of the young people, but honest to God, we don't even know where to start with this. And the IEC rep that was with us on the panel was just like, well, then just start your own political party. Just run for president. Just, just do it. Um, and yet the frustration is it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It seems simple in terms of like constitutions and charters, et cetera, that truly, if I'm not happy with the people on my ballot, then I should be the one to go for it. But the system is already so unfair. So I think the question I want to get to here is 
how do we get to a point where we can let and allow for young people to infiltrate these formal spaces on the political scale, not just necessarily for representation purposes, but giving them the opportunity to play the game. Um, there's almost this hesitancy of wanting to play the game, not wanting to learn the rules of it because it's it's too much, but that's the way to, to enter, right? So how do we how do we mobilize young people into considering playing that game? Well, um, um, that, that's a good reflection when you say that and the uh, representation, but not only, I need to put this back, but not only, um, you know, representation for the sake of feeling quotas and saying these are represented, but actually meaningful engagement when it comes to politics and when it comes to, to decision making. Um, I, I would agree with the, the panelists and speakers that we had who said actually need to get into politics. Um, I, I agree with that. Challenging as it may be, um, I'll give an example. Well, there's the thing, not to share who said this, uh, but that person specifically said the essence of leadership is sacrifice. Imagine pre-1994 if um, the leaders like Steve Beagle or Nelson Mandela said, oh, we actually don't even know if South Africa is considered a democracy, so why should we try we would we have the reality we have um, today? Maybe we would have had it in 1994, no, because the people that would have pushed us said, uh, we actually, you know, the space is not representative of black people, the space is not representative of, you know, of, of Africans. So, mm, there are so many challenges to push against the apartheid government, so we're not going to push. We, we can't. We won't be able to make any effectual change if we. Um, if I think the challenges are more than our, our passion and our interest into making the space uh, reflective. Um, responses to that is how do we make a, a formal space inclusive of, of young people and more and have them work in terms of meaningful, meaningful participation? First things first, we need to work together. Many times you find one needs to go there, one needs to go there. You know, I think if we, if we bring our initiatives together and actually find a way to coordinate and collaborate, that, that will have an impact. Um, there, there are cases where young people have gotten together and lobbied, I would say, some once again, of Nigeria with the Not Too Young to Run campaign. Because youth across the, uh, that country united and said, actually, this legislation is unfair, we're going to run and lobby against it. The Nigerian legislature actually reduced the number of years that are required to run for political office. Allow more and more young people to come in, but it's very really lobby, right? Sorry, Cynthia, I lost your I lost your audio for a second over there. You 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 cut off when you're talking about the um, the lobbying um, for young people in the formal spaces. If you could just repeat that, please. Um, so one. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I'm I'm losing your audio completely now. Um right, so just to go back to the lobbying 
process and movement towards having young people in formal spaces. Um, can you just give us maybe a bit of a breakdown on how we can start taking the steps to getting there? Um, I think the first one that you had mentioned was just the mindset shift that needs to occur, psychological change and drive that needs to occur, that if you won power, you have to take it back. And case in point, your Steve Biko, your you know, Nelson Mandela, Krisani, and so on and so forth. Fine. Now, now I have that mindset. Now, how do I move forward from there? Um, thanks again, Yanga. And um, yes, I think a, a mindset shift is necessary, not only for the young people themselves, but even for those that are actually in positions of power to, to realize. I always make an argument that um, it's it's not enough to say we should include young people because they're young people. We should include young people because they are 30% or 50% of the population or in, in countries like the Gambia, you hear about youth making 60% of the population. It's it's a great argument, yes, but it, it's very limiting because it, it leads again to, you know, issues that we're saying around quota fulfilling a you know an expectation and it actually leads to a policy panic because you're just responding to this you know increase in terms of the in terms of the demographics but if we actually have a mindset shift and we actually look into skills what what capacities do these people or this demographic have uh, their tech saveness their innovativeness how do we bring that into resolving development challenges such as um, you know radicalization and these are things that our governments are failing to address um, violent extremisms you know recruitments on the internet these are things that our governments are uh, you know challenged at addressing but if we speak then to young people that are either in IT coming into to help and address that it changes the mindset from you know just people that are part of a big population to people that are actually contributing to responding to challenges and threats that our states are facing and then in terms of um i think ensuring that we actually participate in politics um the first is coordination and and um you know coming together we need to collaborate and not operate in silos that's critical if you're mobilizing you need to have the masses um so i think working together is the first part understanding the system um one person said gone are the days where you know activism should just be about making noise you actually need to be strategic in some cases it makes noise to protest and go in the street but in some cases it makes sense to sit in the meetings that you know these very people we want to be included by are sitting in and listening and learning from them so that aspect of intergenerational dialogue intergenerational leadership intergenerational engagement where you don't come in with an approach that says we know the government is failing we know the government is not doing this. We know you're you're not doing that. Is that correct? Yes. Is that strategic? No. Because the moment you come in saying that, they're not going to listen to you. But the moment you come in to say, actually, I think I could learn one or two things. The next time you as young or young person suggest this to, to that person who's in the position of power, they're willing to learn from you. Why? Because you've built a relationship. You have worked with them. Challenge to the system is you have tried to understand the system. So that's one of the things that could work beyond um beyond um you know protesting and participating in alternative methods um 
third 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 method is to to leverage on international on dynamics within the international development space um different organizations usid um cas you know different international organizations actually coming up to say okay we have programs for young people we've got funding for young people make sure that as an organization you're organized enough to get that funding to engage with those with those um international organizations and why do i say that governments don't operate in silos so if at the international level you know there's there increasing calls for inclusion of young people chances are you know our governments who also try to to do some some rebranding uh, in the in the past years we've seen a number of young people taking you know positions of power either even within your traditional uh, political parties such as the ANC you find a young person getting uh, getting a position to be in power and and that's that sort of that's to respond to international pressures so i think leveraging on those caveats or opportunities that come up within the international space i think that that's also one of the ways through which um, um young people could better coordinate and and make use of the opportunities that are there to leverage and advance their their cause when it comes to to their inclusion in politics and government well i think our time is running out uh, but this conversation truly could keep on going for such a long time because now i just want to delve into okay fine now tell me about those networking opportunities and how we get into that as young people um how does even an organization of a small group of my activists how do i formalize them and how do we move forward from there um Plenty of other questions. What role as young women specifically um, do I have to be able to, to um, enter in and have that level of agency considering the amount of um, unfair advantages ahead of me um, all the way to um, how do young people who are in queer spaces enter into these conversations and um, especially if they're entering into these conversations with people who perhaps don't even respect them by virtue of their identity to begin with. Um, but we don't have time, so <laughs> I have to end this here. Uh, perhaps another time when schedules align and we're good again, we can make maybe make this a part two um, episode where we can maybe delve exactly into those nitty gritties. Um, but Cynthia, I should be letting you go and I also need to be let go. But just before I let you go, maybe just some uh, final thoughts and, and parting words of wisdom for our listeners and our viewers. Um, great. Thank you so much again, Yanga, for, for having me. It's been it's been such a pleasure and, and so much to 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 want to expand and, and engage further on, particularly the role of, of women. I think that's critical, especially with August celebrating our National Women's Day. It's important to reflect on women's role in leadership, which is not always appreciated at all always underappreciated so hopefully we'll get to engage on that my parting uh words of wisdom would be uh mobilize there is power in a numbers um at the at the core of of democracy itself or as representative democracy is actually numbers for you to win an election you need numbers for you to make a case you need numbers to so mobilize and these are there's a proverb i heard recently which i've been very excited to share which says um he or she who thinks that they are leading, but they have no followers are merely taking a walk. So mobilize, have people that join the cause, um, that would be effective. And then I think to wrap off, it is to say um, that development, peace and security, human rights should be 
everybody's business. Don't think that if you're in the private sector, it doesn't affect you because you actually need a stable environment in order to operate and for your business to be effective. So peace and security development should be everybody's business. And um, I'll close off with a quote by uh, the former Secretary General Kofi Annan, who says, the causes of um, development, security, and human rights must be pursued together. Otherwise, none will succeed. So again, that interconnectedness, not just of us as, as a people, as humanity, but also even the, the components of, of some of our dis, um, development aspirations, such as economic development. Without peace, some of the progress we've made, the buildings, the infrastructure can be destroyed. So I think, again, that interconnectedness and um, reinforcing the, the values of Ubuntu and a people-centered approach, even at at the at, at the smallest level in our organizations, it starts there. It's not going to start at a at a grand scale. It starts with the with the smaller issues, accountability to each other as human beings. So, so that's that's quite a lot. But we'll we'll leave it there, and hopefully we'll get to engage again next time. Yes, we will leave it there. I will hold you to that, and I know our audience will also hold you to that to bring your right here so we can expand exactly on that conversation. Um, Cynthia, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I really, really, really do appreciate it. I cannot wait to expand um, on the conversation and uh, make plans regarding that. To our listeners and our viewers, thank you so much for joining us and making it through all the way to this part of the episode. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And until next time, thank you. Well, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out our social media pages at DDP underscore democracy to engage with more of our content. Or you can head on over to our website at ddp.org.za to keep up with any events that we might have planned for you. Thank you once again for joining us.